0: This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel, the official travel agency of Communicore Weekly. Email Communicore Weekly at FairyGodmotherTravel.com to book your vacation today. Again, that's Fairy Godmother Travel. <laughs> welcome to season three! Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born, identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff,
1: and welcome to episode 130 of the greatest online show. And you would think after 130 episodes, we'd have this down. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> In case you missed it last week on one twenty nine, it got a little ridiculous. Don't you think it got a little ridiculous? Just slightly. We we have gotten a lot of comments about the the ghost whistle. I'm not gonna do it again because I <laughs> Thank think. Thank
0: goodness, because it is dark here.
1: Oh, good. I don't want to scare you because it's still light here as we discussed last time. <laughs> we got a lot of comments about that, and also about Cadet Leo's bathroom break. Yeah, that was, was awesome. Which was great. So, we're glad that you guys enjoyed it. And thanks for sticking around for 130 episodes of our shenanigans because that's all it is, really.
0: <laughs> shenanigans? The, the,
1: yeah. Is that the name of the restaurant you like? It's with, my favorite restaurant. The, with all the crazy stuff, stuff on, on the, on the walls? walls. I love it. <laughs> I, I like how we both said it at the same time. <laughs> We've clearly been <laughs> friends for a very long time.
0: <sighs>
1: Maybe too long? Perhaps. Perhaps. Before we not be friends, let's go <laughs> into the history segment. It's time for Disney History! You guys, I love 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Granted, the ride at Walt Disney World was amazing, but I'm actually referring to the 1954 Disney film. It's like, seriously, one of my favorite live-action films of all time. Uh, If not the best Disney live-action film they've ever done. So I thought it would be a good idea to kind of go back and take a look at 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in kind of a general sense and kind of look at the, the book a little bit and, and the film itself. So, of course, you should all know by now it was originally a novel uh, by the same name by Jules Verne, and it was published in 1870. And the novel itself was regarded as one of the premier adventure novels, and actually it's one of Verne's greatest works that he's, he's ever written. And the title itself, this, this is a common mistake by people, the title refers to the distance actually traveled under the under the sea, and not to an actual depth. Because uh, twenty thousand leagues is actually over six times the diameter of Earth, so you would be going down like past China like a thousand times. So the it's, the greatest depth that's actually mentioned in the book is only four leagues. So they were four leagues down, but they traveled twenty thousand. It's sort of like the Castle Run. It is kind of like the Castle Run. It's Look at like you bringing it back League. to another Disney hey, franchise now. I got to
0: keep it real. Damn. So.
1: They they can travel the earth in four parsecs. (laughs) Just do that one. Is it four parsecs? I probably made that up. (laughs) I know it's parsecs. (laughs) I think none of us are physics majors, so we're going to move on. Physics majors? Um, That's a a line from the movie.
0: No, it's 12 parsecs. Oh, it's 12 parsecs? 12 parsecs. Oh, well, I was giving him a lot more credit than that, obviously. All right, anyway. While the Disney film adaptation is fantastic, it it wasn't the first film adaptation of the novel. The distinction goes to the 1916 silent film directed by Stuart Patton. Uh, Though it was named 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the film incorporated elements from both the original novel and its sequel, The Mysterious Island, which Verne released in 1874. In fact, it is really more of an adaptation of sequel as the main pilot or the main plot is lifted from the mysterious island though it does retain elements of the original story this version also explores the origins of captain nemo more deeply than later versions and retains his ambiguously east indian ethnicity
1: Now, especially of note was that that was actually the first motion picture that was filmed underwater. Uh, Actual underwater cameras were not used, but there was a system of these watertight tubes and mirrors that allowed the camera to shoot reflected images of underwater scenes uh, that were staged in these shallow, unlit waters. And uh, the invention itself was called the Williamson Tube, because the guy who invented it, his last name was Williamson. So, I mean, that kind of makes a lot of sense. but the major underwater sequence is kind of more of a travelogue than a plot uh, point of the film, because the film, the film process of that was still really exper- uh, experimental at the time. And, you know, it's kind of common now to turn on your TV and see these great underwater sequences. And, you know, they have great IMAX movies about it. But for 1916, that was kind of groundbreaking. So, I mean, it it was basically them traveling in the Nautilus underwater. And Mm -hmm. you know, there really was no talking. There was Captain Nemo pointing stuff out. But it had no real bearing on the plot of the film. They were just kind of showing it off.
0: Yeah. So if the Williamson tube they used to sort of film underwater, what would a Heimbuck tube be used for? Uh, this is a family-friendly show, so... Okay, okay. just say Cooking Steak. Actually, let's go with that. They'll go with that. I okay. like that one. <laughs> All right, so the, the film was made by the Universal Film Manufacturing Company, better known now as Universal Pictures. They were not known as a major motion picture studio, you know, back then. Yet, in 1916, they financed this film's innovative special effects... Uh, location photography, large sets, exotic costumes, sailing ships, and full-size navigable mock-up of the surface submarine Nautilus. Hal Erickson has said that the cost of this film was so astronomical that it could not possibly post a profit, putting the kibosh on any subsequent Verne adaptations for quite some time. Now, moving along to the Disney version of the film, there's an
1: interesting bit of a backstory here. Uh, During World War II, a lot of Disney's animated efforts kind of went into help producing training films and such uh, for the army and all all that. So they they didn't want to be out of the filmmaking loop entirely, so Disney shot a handful of live-action features uh, in Europe, so they can continue putting movies out and making some kind of profit. And uh, Disney actually discovered that making live-action films was much cheaper, and it had a lot faster turnaround time than any of their animated features. So, even after the war ended, uh, they decided to continue making live-action features, along with the animated ones. And uh, some of the attention was placed solely on live-action films, which is probably why some of the animated films during that time suffered a little bit. But uh, the very first of these live-action films based out of the Walt Disney Studio in Burbank was, of course, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea.
0: The film was put into production in the uh, spring of 1954 and starred Hollywood A list actors such as James Mason, Peter Lohr, and Kirk Douglas, who's the father of Michael Douglas. The film was directed by Richard Fleischer, and Richard was the son of Max Fleischer, who was the creator of Betty Boop and Popeye, and in some ways was an animated rival to Walt Disney's animation efforts. The film was shot on location in various locations in the Bahamas and Jamaica, with the cave scenes filmed beneath what is now the Ixtabi Resort on the Cliffs of Negril. Some of the location filming sequences were so complex that they required a technical crew of over 400 people, which is almost as many people as it takes to make this show. It,
1: yeah, we have people in the back just like running on hamster wheels to keep going, give us power.
0: Oh, we gotta do something, Yeah. So uh, the film, like Communicore Weekly, presented many other challenges as well. The famous giant squid attack sequence had to be entirely reshot as it was originally filmed as taking place at dusk and in a calm sea. It wasn't very dramatic nor exciting, so it was decided to film it again, this time taking place at night and during a huge gale, both to increase the drama and to better hide the cables and other mechanical workings of the animatronic squid. This reshot sequence is now one of the most impressive ever captured on film, still to this day.
1: Now, costs for this film continued to soar, and then during production, and the budget just kept getting higher and higher. And the film would eventually cost close to five million dollars, which kind of defeated the purpose of a live-action film being less costly than the animated features. But (laughs) despite the cost, the film was finished and released just two days uh, before Christmas in 1954.
0: 20,000 Leagues went on to become the second highest grossing film of the year, making $8 million at the box office. Critics and audiences alike loved it. James Mason was praised for his portrayal of Captain Nemo. The film's technical and special effect, effect work earned it an Academy Award for special effects and another for art direction. In 1966, some of the sets of the film were put on display at Disneyland due to its continued popularity. And then, of course, we got a ride out of it at uh, the Magic Kingdom, which was also awesome. So it was. So I, I
1: love that movie. I, I, you've seen it before, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, plenty of times. And read the book. Yeah, me too. I've read ah, the book as well.
0: Ah. I've
1: read the book be so, because I saw the movie. I went backwards <laughs> there. I didn't actually didn't know it was a, a book at the time when I saw it as a kid.
0: That's
1: okay. That know, sometimes, lot, kids, so. kids sometimes don't know these things. But if you haven't read the book either, you should read the book and the Mysterious Island, the sequel to it, because, you know, there's
0: more to that story. Exactly. And if you have any questions or comments about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd. He's a, nerd. He's a geek. But we all like to
1: hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. Ha! It's George's Book of the Week.
0: This week's book is The Imagineering Field Guide to Disney California Adventure at Disneyland Resort, which is another huge title. So I have been a huge fan of the Imagineering Field Guide series since their introduction in 2005 with the Magic Kingdom title, which was first. I own all of them, sometimes two or three copies, and I will consult them regularly for different projects and articles that I'm working on. You know, they're uh, probably one of the best resources that you're going to find for theme park nerdiness outside of the show, of course, because that's that's your number one destination. That's the number one. I go back and list, yeah. Um, And uh, they finally, you know, Disney put the finishing touches on Disney California Adventure itself, and it was time to release this guide. And uh, I know I spoke with Alex Wright the Imagineer who wrote this, and he was thrilled to finally be able to do it and sort of put the series to rest.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's cool. I mean, I I think the the guides overall are great. They're a great little size, so they're perfect to, you know, put them in your back pocket when when you go to the park. And I think, you know, the real idea behind them is to experience the lands that you read about while learning some insider information about them. And, you know, the the Disney California Adventure Guide, it follows the same formula as all the other previous ones before it. And it kind of takes you land by land, and it kind of breaks down design aspects. And it helps to explain some of the Imagineering uh, terminology that you may or may not be familiar with. But if you're listening to the show, chances are you're probably familiar with those terms already.
0: (laughs) You know them already, yeah. You know, one of the taglines that they've used with the whole series is it's sort of like having an Imagineer in your pocket. Um, Which one? I don't know, you might get in trouble for that too. You know, it's like you're not supposed to leave your car your dog in a hot car. You're not supposed to leave an imaginary in your pocket. Yeah, don't leave an imaginary in your pocket don't while you're walking them. around the parks. Yeah, I guess so. Just not, not after midnight. Yeah. But <laughs> Mogwine. So anyway, it you know, when you when you go through the books, it really is like having an imagineer strolling down Buena Vista Street with you or showing you some of the hidden details that you might not have seen in Radiator Springs. And you know, as Jeff mentioned, the guide does, you know, tame some of the loftier terms and breaks them down to make them easier for us lay people to understand. And it also does a great job of pointing out and highlighting a lot of those great little details that makes a Disney park stand out from the rest. Yeah, and I think it really
1: does an excellent job of explaining, like, very specific terms or design processes that the reader probably doesn't know, and then, you know, not only that, but then it goes on to show an example of it actually used inside the park somewhere. Um, And the only downside to this is that if you own all the other volumes in the series, you may be rereading some of the same material again. Um, but it all—it all really does come together nicely, um, and of course, I like it best when they're—they're they're pointing out five-legged goats in the park. <laughs> um, of course, I'm not using that term in the book, but we all know that's what they're actually are.
0: Exactly guys. what they mean. Um, So one of the things that I like about the guide itself is how they handle the lands. Uh, They'll start with a big picture look at the whole area, and then they'll drill down and showcase those great little uh, goats or details. And it, it really makes sense. And the guides are always high on my list of recommended books because of their attention to details of the details themselves. My biggest complaint, though, has always been since the first time with the first book, is I want larger versions of the concept artwork that they feature because sometimes this is the first time this concept art's been published
1: and it's so small again they're pocket (laughs) size so it's hard sometimes you gotta squint to see some of the little details so (laughs) i would like some of those actual images i don't know put them in a book or online somewhere i want to see them but either way i like the field guide series i like this uh, entry into it it's really cool to get some insider information about uh california adventure and uh, i definitely recommend
0: it yeah, I always, I always recommend them. This, uh, this week's book was the Imagineering Field Guide to Disney California Adventure. If it's a legend that you seek, come on and take a peek at the window of the week.
1: Jay Norworth and A. Von Telzer, songwriters, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, now available in sheet music. Now, funny enough, this window, which is located in Disneyland Paris, it doesn't actually pay tribute to anyone that actually helped build the park like some of the other windows do. Mm -hmm. However, it does really fit in with the Americana theming of Main Street that they have at Disneyland Paris. Um, Located above Casey's Corner, this window obviously honors Jack Norworth and Albert Von
0: Tilzer. In 1908, Jack Norworth wrote the lyrics to Take Me Out to the Ball Game, while Albert Von Tilzer wrote the music it's appropriate that this window is above Casey's Corner, which is baseball-themed. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. <laughs> All
1: right, we're gonna get a little crazy obscure here for a minute, guys. No, George? <laughs> yeah? Have you seen the 1991 Disney film, Father of the Bride? Why yes, yes I have. And it, You know the one starring Steve Martin and Diane Keaton and Martin Short? Yep, I've seen it. Did you see the 1995 sequel, Father of the Bride Part Two? Yes. <laughs> well, did you enjoy them? Uh, I really loved the first one. The second one was eh, it okay. was okay. I'll was accept okay. that. I agree. Are you wondering why I'm asking you why you've seen these movies? I'm just wondering why you're talking to me like that. What do you mean? I'm not. I'm not being condescending, am I? Have you seen this movie? Oh, like <laughs> that. <laughs> oh. It's like
0: I was on a weird game show.
1: That is a weird <gasps> game show. Is this a
0: weird game show? Am I going to win a prize?
1: No. Your prize is that oh. we get to finish the episode as soon as I'm done with this.
0: <laughs> no, that's the cadet's prize. Oh.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> anyway, so what what does all that have to do with a five like a goat? Well, I have no idea. Well, sometimes people like to get married at Walt Disney World, even though it's crazy expensive. People mm-hmm. do it. And sometimes they like to get married at the Grand Floridian, especially at the chapel at the Disney Wedding Pavilion at the Grand Floridian. And the name of the wedding pavilion? It's Franks, Not Frank, Frunk. <laughs> and how does that relate to Father of the Bride? Well, Frunk was the name of the wedding planner they hired, played by Martin Short. And the wedding pavilion, it opened four years after the original film came out. And since it was so popular at the time, and the character was so hilarious, they decided to name the uh, the chapel after him. So it was now called Franks. So next yeah. time you get married there, or the first time, or the second time, <laughs> whenever, you're actually getting married at a place that is named after a character in a Steve Martin movie, Franks.
0: <laughs> you know, I do wonder how many people just miss that totally.
1: Uh, it's a very, it. very obscure detail. Mm-hmm. Very, mm-hmm. very obscure. I don't even remember how I found that one out, to be honest with you. I remember hearing it the first time, and I knew exactly
0: what it was from, but, you know, that's because... You mean hearing it for the first time right now? No, no, n- no, when they debuted the uh, the wedding pavilion. You mean you were we'll on another that? game show where they asked that? Exactly, exactly. I
1: don't Oops. like you going on other game shows. Jeopardy. <laughs> Jeopardy. <laughs> I like that. No other game shows, yes. That's in your contract, George. You better look that yeah, up no, again,
0: sir. No. You have contract? What? No, no what? contract? All right, yeah, before this gets any weirder, we want to <laughs> thank everybody so much for watching and listening to us again. Mm-hmm. I'm fairly certain that's how we started the outro uh, the last time around as well. But, uh, oh, okay. Okay, so thanks for watching us one more time. Sure, for listening not? to us one more time. For continuing to. Ah, that's even better. Sure. Anyway, leave us a
1: comment and give us a nice rating on the iTunes. We, we love getting nice ratings on the iTunes. Some of them are, h- are hilarious. There was one the other day. I forget what it said, but we posted it on the Facebook page. <laughs> and it was one of the funniest reviews ever. Yes, it was. And uh, you can always email us at Communicore Weekly at gmail.com and of course like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Weekly. still going strong with the mustache Mondays and the Tony yep. Baxter Tuesdays and Flying Saucer Fridays and well we've only had one ghost whistle Wednesday but there there <laughs> may be more I'm going to stay off Facebook on Wednesday we, we uh,
0: should do Serendipitous Saturday I can't even spell that you're in charge <laughs> of that one <laughs> <laughs> it's easy anyway I meant serendipitously Sir, sir, okay, stop using spellcheck. I will, I will. Okay, so you guys can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imagineerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, you can always uh, give us a call
1: on the Communicore Le- Weekly GOAT line at
0: 424-785-4628. And you can get your copy of Communicore Weekly, the musical, now. Please do it now. We'd love for you to listen to it. You can get it at CD Baby, Amazon, iTunes, and listen for free on Spotify.
1: Heck yes.
0: Oh, yeah. So for Jeff Heimbach, I'm
1: George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbach. Thanks so much for listening in guys and gals. We'll see you next time on CommuniCore Weekly, the greatest online show.